continue on through our series of the trees in the Bible. This morning we'll be looking at the book of Judges, chapter 9. If you have the larger print Bibles, it's on page 387, 387. If you have the smaller print, you can look around 242. That's page 242 in the small print, 387 in the larger print. of Abimelech, who is a son of Gideon. And as we read, you'll hear Jerubbaal is his father's name. That's just another name for Gideon. So you may not recognize Jerubbaal, but you may be familiar with the story of Gideon. Anyway, that's his father. So Judges 9, I'll read verses 1 uh, through 21. Judges 9, verse 1. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have all seventy of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. They gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Barith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murders his seventy brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want me, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you've acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jerubbaal and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, 
But today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is your brother. Well, if then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jerubbaal and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy. May you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beir, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. This is the word of the Lord. Leadership is a bit of a buzzword these days. It's the topic of a nauseating amount of books, and it seems that just about anyone who makes a six-figure six salary is qualified to write on the topic. If you're young and ambitious and want to get into Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, you better be a leader, according to their admissions sites. It's not enough to participate in chess club. You better have been the president of your chess club. It's not enough to study diligently for four years. You better have been the student body, pre student body president as well. North America's obsession with leadership is not a new thing. Already in the 1930s, the Dale Carnegie Center for Excellence was teaching and preaching the gospel of leadership to a depression-worn America. Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was an immediate hit around the same time. Even now, almost 90 years later, it continues to be one of the best-selling business books of all time. His whole brand is built on the conviction that, quote, to compete and grow, everyone must be a leader, unquote. Jessica Weisberg, a writer for The New Yorker, went to a free seminar for potential students of the Dale Carnegie Center for Excellence. She made her way into the basement of a high-rise in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. When she arrived, two women in dark suits cheerfully handed her a name tag and directed her toward Classroom B, a drab, windowless room with gray carpet. There were about 20 or so other students waiting patiently in their folding chairs with their white name tags on and their button-down shirts. Most of them were men in suits with slick hair. A few were there with colleagues. Many of them were bankers. But Jessica sat next to a man with shaggy hair and a friendly face. He was a singer-songwriter, but he also needed to make money, so he supported himself as a real estate broker. He'd been losing clients for years now, so he was planning his next career move. He came across a flyer for a free Dale Carnegie class. He emphasized he was there because it's free. He'd always been the kind of person to work for himself. So he told Jessica, I've never thought of myself as a natural leader. It's kind of amazing you can just come here and learn how to be one. Now Abimelech, strikes me as the kind of guy who would join Jessica and the shaggy-haired real estate man in a free seminar 
about Dale Carnegie's principles for leadership. He is a bit of an underdog himself, but he's a visionary. He's a son of the mighty Gideon, but one of 70 brothers. And his mother's occupation put him at the far low end of the pecking order in his family. So he's the brooding type. And seems he has some father issues. His dad, Gideon, was a natural-born leader and a warrior who fought for Israel. But when the Israelites asked Gideon and his sons and grandsons to rule over them, he refused. He said, no, the Lord will rule over you. Abimelech, on the other hand, is ready to flex his own leadership muscles. He's ready to step up where his father had refused. He's ready to execute his vision, to rule over the people of, the people of Israel, just like they had asked. He is planning his next career move. He's the kind of guy who would sit next to Jessica and the shaggy-haired real estate agent in order to learn how to win friends and influence people. Now, according to the wisdom of Dale Carnegie, there are at least 12 different ways or strategies to win people over to your way of thinking. One strategy is to be sympathetic to other people's desires. Abimelech scribbles this down in his leather-bound notebook. He knows what the Israelites desire. They had asked his father to be their ruler. They wanted a strong, visionary leader. So he gathers his mom's side of the family together and he casts a vision for his ground campaign. He says, go out into the city, ask the people what they want. Say, is it better for you to have 70 rulers or would you like to have just one? Show the people we're sympathetic to their desires. Another Carnegie strategy to win people over is to appeal to their nobler motives. And for the people of Shechem, there are few things more noble or morally upright than loyalty to the clan or to the family. Abimelech is savvy to this. He adds, don't just tell the people that we're sympathetic. Appeal to their morals. Remind them, I'm their own flesh and blood. I'm one of them. I'm from here. I get it. They'll be more inclined to follow me if we make this about family loyalty. He's not wrong. Abimelech launches his political campaign and his ground game is strong right out of the gate. His uncles and cousins spread themselves throughout the city with their sympathetic message that simultaneously appeals to clan loyalty. People were inclined to follow Abimelech. They said, he's our brother. He's one of us. He's from here. He gets it. Abimelech's campaign raises a critical mass of support, and with that support comes the money. With the money, he goes out and hires a gang of basically henchmen who then march over to his father's house and kill all his brothers on one stone. All but one brother. I guess the youngest brother, Jotham, escapes. We can't really blame Abimelech, though. I mean, after all, he had been given a clear directive from the people. They wanted one leader, not 70. Anyway, with his critical 
massive support, and now with all his competition wiped off the ballot, all the people of Shechem gather at the great tree at the pillar at Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Here is the first king of Israel. It's not Saul. It's actually Abimelech. He is partly a brilliant leader. He sure knew how to rally the people behind him, but he is also terribly vengeful and violent. Now, the people of Shechem agreed to support him because he's their own flesh and blood, but this is a man who violently executes his own flesh and blood. They agree to support him because he casts a vision of a better life for them, but his promises are empty never really been interested in the people. He wants to be king for himself. <coughs> Jotham, the youngest of the brothers, had managed to hide and escape Abimelech's violent killing rampage. But at first he doesn't hide. He sticks his neck out. He climbs up on Mount Gerizim on the southwest side of the city. He steps onto a triangular rock ledge on the side of Gerizim, and it forms a kind of natural pulpit. From there, he can be heard across the valley. So he tells the people this parable. One day, trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. So they said to the olive tree, come be our king. The olive tree said, should I give up my oil? by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees. So that's a no from the olive tree. Next, the trees went to the fig tree. Come, be our king. Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Another no. So the tree said to the vine, come be our king. Well, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? A third, no. What do all these trees have in common? They don't want to be king because they're too busy doing useful stuff. Make no mistake, these other trees are meant to be models of leaders. But they're leading by doing the thing the Creator made them to do. And they won't give that up in order to rule over all the other trees. Jotham goes on, so finally all the trees said to the thornbush, come be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, well, if you want to anoint me king over you, then come, take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. The thornbush offers its shade. This is laughable. It is an empty promise. A thornbush cannot give shade to trees. Its only real usefulness was for starting fires. So while it seems like the thornbush is giving the trees an option between a blessing and a curse, between shade or fire, there is really only one possible outcome. A fire is imminent. Now, Jotham doesn't leave much to the imagination. He's pretty straightforward about what the parable means. The people have made a thornbush their king. It's a kingship, kingship built on empty promises and violence toward the family of Jerubbaal. 
In making a thorn bush, the king, the people of Shechem, are complicit in the death of the Gideon's other sons, and they are guilty of dishonoring Gideon himself, who had refused to rule over them, who had refused to let his sons, even his grandsons, rule over them, insisting that the Lord will rule over you. So again, maybe on face value, it seems like Jotham is giving the people an option between a blessing and a curse, between shade or fire, but their actions have made clear that there really is only one possible outcome. They have made Abimelech their king because he is their brother, but he is also the kind of person who kills his brothers. He will end up killing them too, if you keep reading. He killed his brothers upon a single rock, and a single rock ends up killing him as well, if you were to read to the end of the chapter. They have made a thorn bush their king. A fire is imminent. Now, in our current place and time in North America, obsessed as we are with various models and methods of leadership, we may be able to look at the multiplicity of leaders in our lives and maybe recognize some thorn bushes. We recognize thorn bushes as those people who put themselves forward as strong leaders, who know all the right strategies to win friends and influence people, but whose promises are empty. We recognize thorn bushes by their virtual uselessness, except to fuel fires, to harm people, and then to blame those same people. Their only so-called leadership skill is their ability to convince people that they're leaders. Of course, the problem is that we may not actually recognize thorn bushes for what they are until the fire has already started. But even then, we often circle the wagons around the thorn bushes we've chosen as our leaders and warm ourselves by the fire they create. By current accounts, it does seem that this is what happened at Willow Creek, like Pastor Carl prays for. This is a huge church, which is famous for its leadership training. Now, if you've been following the Christian news in North America, you've likely heard that in the last week, their two lead pastors, current lead pastors, uh, resigned, along with their entire board of elders. This, of course, is after Bill Hybels was accused of harassment and inappropriate behavior. Now, it doesn't surprise us that a church made famous for its literature and conferences on leadership would itself face a crisis of leadership, not only in the actions of its former pastor, but then in the ways that his successors kind of circled the wagons around him and tried to protect him in the following months. Of course it's surprising. I don't know, maybe Jotham wouldn't be so surprised. Maybe one way to recognize a thorn bush is that it's the only thing the trees can find that actually wants to be their king. The other trees don't want to be their leader. They're too busy actually doing stuff. They're doing the stuff God created them to do. 
the olive tree would not dream of giving up its olive oil just to rule over the trees. The fig tree wouldn't dream of giving up its fruit in order to rule over the trees. The vine cannot bear the thought of giving up its wine in order to rule over the trees. These things the trees produce honor and cheer both people and God. And of course, the irony of it is that any of these trees, even the grapevine, would have been much better equipped to carry out the very promise that the thornbush made. That's shade. The, the shade they could have provided is simply a byproduct of doing what it is God made them to do. Their kind of leadership is a byproduct of doing what God made them to do. Jotham's parable suggests to us that maybe the best quality of leadership is not going to conferences or reading books or even having a clear vision or knowing how to win friends and influence people. But the best leadership quality may simply be diligently doing the work that God has created you to do. The best equipped leaders may be the very ones who are suspicious of the term, who do not want to be leaders. This sounds incredibly strange to our culture, where we award ambitious visionaries. But it may also be part of the reason why our Belgic confession warns that people should not push themselves forward into the offices of the church. Well, if someone is vying to be in a position of leadership, Jotham's parable serves as a warning sign. Beware of the thornbush. Like I said, if you were to continue reading through the end of Judges 9, you'd see that God burns up this thornbush, Abimelech. But then God continues to provide judges for the Israelites. Some of the judges were good. Others were terribly bad. Gideon had insisted that the Lord would rule Israel. But then time after time, Israel keeps pleading with the Lord for a king. So eventually God gives them what they want. They get their kings. But even then, it's a real mixed bag. Some were good. Others were terribly bad. And then in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus, the true king, into the world. Perhaps it's no coincidence that at various times, Jesus is somehow associated with trees and vines. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's an allusion to an olive tree. Jesus also calls himself the true vine. He's like those characters in Jotham's parable. He is not some visionary leader in an air-conditioned office, and he does not offer empty promises. Just like the trees, Jesus shows us what a leader looks like by doing stuff. He walks with his disciples. He teaches. He eats with people. He heals the sick. He grieves. He washes people's feet. He 
He does not send in an army on his behalf to defeat God's enemies, but he himself leads God's people through death by hanging on a cross, being laid in a tomb, and then he leads God's people even further into life by not staying dead. Jesus is God's final answer to our incredible knack for finding thorn bushes to lead us. Jesus' people are no longer ruled by judges or kings or presidents or prime ministers. Whatever power or sway earthly leaders have over us is fleeting and temporary. What Gideon said has been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Lord will rule over you. So even now, as we wait for the day when Christ reigns, Will be made full when everything will be in full submission to him we can still thank god for those leaders he provides us those leaders who follow christ's example we can adjust our vision of what leadership looks like it's not so much about how to win friends and influence people it's not even so much about casting a compelling vision it has much more to do with being united to the true vine, who shows us how to lead by doing what God sent him to do. It is the true vine that shows us what kind of king and therefore what kind of kingdom God has in mind for his people. And so the meal that we'll share this morning, it's a foretaste of the great banquet feast of our coming king and helps us to see into the future. It is God's pledge to us and assurance to us that Jesus will come again to establish his kingdom on this earth. And we'll celebrate the feast with all those God has called to himself. Thanks be to God for these promises. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, the gift of your word. Help us to believe what we have heard. Give us eyes to see and discern leaders that are faithful in doing the tasks you set out. And help us to give our allegiance only to Christ, our true king, who will come again to reign forever. Until then, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <coughs>